Welcome to When the Stars Disappear, a podcast that looks to scripture for guidance when our lives seem covered by darkness. Our name comes from the story in Acts about the Apostle Paul sailing across the Mediterranean Sea in order to appear before Caesar in Rome. In those days, sailors used the sun, moon, and stars to navigate. But Paul's ship sailed into a storm that blotted out all of heaven's lights, leaving them unsure where they were or what to do. When storms of suffering or doubt overtake us, we can feel like they did. We can feel as if all of the stars that have been guiding us have disappeared, leaving us unable to understand life or know what to do. Our guide as we address these issues is Mark Talbot, a professor of philosophy at Wheaton College. Mark suffered a paralyzing accident when he was 17 and now is writing a four-volume series on suffering and the Christian life. Both the first volume, When the Stars Disappear, and the second volume, Give Me Understanding That I May Live, are available now from Crossway and wherever books are sold. In this episode, Paul and Mark show why the penalty of death was the inevitable consequence of Adam and Eve's eating from the forbidden tree. Here's their conversation. Mark, you said last time that you would answer this time around a question I think a lot of people have. Why was the death penalty the sanction for our first parents eating from the forbidden tree? I said this didn't seem like a case where the punishment fits a crime. I said, you know, if you could see how if God said you eat that fruit and it's too sugary, you'll get cavities, or if you eat too much fruit, you're going to gain some weight. Those consequences seem logical for this type of an act, but it doesn't seem logical, at least at first blush, that Adam and Eve would die if they ate the fir- from the forbidden tree. Why was it that you said it's quite literally a matter of life and death that they had to obey? This is a crucial question, Paul, for several reasons. One is that if we can't answer it satisfactorily by showing that the penalty is indeed fitting, then it may seem that God was being unreasonable in requiring of our first parents something he shouldn't have required. Right, that's right. Another reason is that if we can show that death inevitably follows from disobeying God, then we will understand much better what it means for God to have created us in his image as persons. We'll understand much better what we were made for. So, in fact, we do need to answer this question. Okay, so let's do it. In order to do it, Paul, I want to start by addressing another question someone may have had about the claims that I made last time. I said that God's prohibiting Adam and Eve from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was more than a matter of God merely asserting his right to require our first parents' obedience. I said we should see it as a matter of God stepping back from our first parents in order to give them space to choose whether they would live in wholehearted, lifelong, committed fellowship with him. Right, right. I wanted to say that he was bidding them to enter into the realm of true love, where they would see their love for him as part of a love match, of entering into the relationship they had been made for, somewhat in the same way as Adam saw God's creation of Eve as completing him, as supplying exactly what was necessary for him to be what God had created him to be. 
Now, somebody might question my interpretation of Genesis 2.17 because the text doesn't explicitly say all of this. But my interpretation is warranted in terms of what's called the analogy of faith. All right. So I'll bite. What is that? What's that phrase? What is the analogy of faith? The analogy of faith is a basic principle of biblical interpretation that's grounded in the fact that because the scriptures have one primary author, the Holy Spirit, they give a single comprehensive account of the salvation God offers us in Christ. So as the Westminster Confession puts it, the true and full sense of any scripture can be known by understanding it in the light of all the rest of the scriptures. So if I'm understanding you and the Westminster Confession of Faith correctly, you're saying that if we want to understand what God is saying in one place in the Bible, it's all right. It's, in fact, it's appropriate to look at what God has said in other places of the Bible. That, that seems fair. It seems right to me. So now we can think of the Bible as having bookends. The first two chapters of Genesis are about creation. And the last two chapters of the last book in Scripture, Revelation, are about consummation. Those are the Bible's bookends, the beginning and the end of the full Christian story. There are, of course, other biblical passages that are about creation and consummation, but those chapters are the really crucial ones. In between, we have literally thousands of pages covering primarily the other two parts of the full Christian story, namely rebellion and redemption. Right. right. But in the Bible's first and last pages— we get a much fuller idea of why God has created our world, in other words, of what motivates the full Christian story. So the story that we're talking about here with Adam and Eve and the tree is anchored in one of the important parts of the book that you're calling a bookend, one of the bookends for the rest, the creation bookend of the Bible. That's right. Now, here's a rule regarding how to interpret what someone is doing when it isn't obvious. Okay. Okay. The rule is that what is last in execution is first in intention. That's, that's a mouthful. Let me give it again. Right. What is sure. last in execution is first in intention. That means that what someone is doing gets its meaning, its reason for being from what they do last. Okay, so I think I know what you're saying here, but I think it might be helpful for me and maybe for our listeners if you gave us an example. Okay, let's say a four-year-old sees her daddy down on the ground doing something near the rear of their car. She asks, what are you doing, Daddy? And he answers, changing this tire. She asks why, and then there's a whole series of answers her father may give. For instance, he might say, the tire I'm changing is flat. You shouldn't drive on a flat tire. I want to drive to the store to buy Mommy a birthday gift, so I'm changing the tire so that I won't drive on a flat tire. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, given the rule that what is last in execution 
is first in intention, we can conclude that the girl's father is changing the tire because he wants to buy his wife a birthday gift and everything else in this sequence or series of events, everything else he's doing from opening the trunk to get out the tools and the spare tire to mm-hmm. jacking the car up so that he can right. change the tire to loosening the lug nuts on the flat tire so that sure. he can take it off and all the rest of that. All of that is done so that he can drive to the store to buy a gift. His wanting to buy his wife a birthday gift is what motivates him to do all of what he's doing. Buying his wife a birthday gift is the last act in the entire sequence, and it's the desire to buy that gift that explains the rest of what he's doing. Right. All right. That's really helpful. And so under this idea, there could be a lot of reasons why he's changing a tire, right? I mean, he could change tire because he wants to race the car. (laughs) He knows it might be snowing pretty soon, and so he wants to put snow tires on you. It's better traction for his winter tires. He might be changing it to get a different set of tires that give him better gas mileage. But your point is you won't really know the reason he's changing the tires until you look at the last thing he does to know the purpose for the tire change. Exactly. Exactly. So now let's ask, what motivated God to create? That's really good. That's, yeah, I'm tracking with you now. If the Bible is one long story telling us what God is accomplishing in history, then what comes last in the Bible is what was first in his mind. And the answer to that question is found in the Bible's last two chapters. We will understand why God created the world when we see where the whole story is going, where it terminates, when we see the end that God has planned from the beginning, from creation, to bring about. You know, that is really a helpful perspective. We often hear the phrase, read the beginning with the end in mind, but it's really applicable here because we're talking about reading creation really through the lens of Revelation 21 and 22, the last two chapters of the Bible. Um, That's extremely helpful. So thanks for that framework. So what would you say that we find in Revelation 21 and 22? We find that from the beginning, God the Father has been continually working to gather a bride for his son, Jesus Christ. Hmm. The consummation of all things involves the marriage supper of the Lamb. God's Lamb is, of course, his son, Jesus Christ, who by dying on the cross took away the sin of the world, Christ's bride is, as it's put in Revelation 21 two, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, in other words, the church, who will be, we're told in verse 9 of chapter 21 of Revelation, the right. wife of the Lamb. Yeah, and those are admittedly some of the most beloved pictures of Christ and his church for Christians in the Bible. Yes, yes. And the picture of the church becoming Christ's bride is a picture of our Lord entering into intimate, everlasting, covenantal communion with us. We get glimmers of that picture of God desiring to enter into intimate, everlasting, covenantal communion with us throughout Scripture. Many of those glimmers involve marriage. Hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. For instance, in Ezekiel 16, 
God is poetically and imaginatively portraying his love for Israel as being a matter of his having found her as an abandoned baby in the wilderness, whom he then rescued and nurtured until she became tall and beautiful and of marriageable age. He then spread the corner of his garment over her. That's an Old Testament sign of marriage. Mm -hmm. He spread the corner of his garment over her to cover her nakedness as he made a vow to her and entered into a covenant with her. And at that point, she became his. Right. Now, by that picture, Ezekiel 16 is actually portraying the covenant God made with Israel at Sinai as a kind of marriage. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And early in that marriage, we're told elsewhere in Scripture, Israel was an eager, beloved bride. So we find in Jeremiah, the second chapter, this claim, Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Mm, yeah, that Jeremiah passage is great. And, and the picture from Ezekiel that you're referring to, it's a really strong one. It's jarring, jarring imagery. You know, you mentioned the baby abandoned in the wilderness. It's it's lying there in, well, in her own blood. And mm-hmm. after God marries the young woman, she plays the prostitute. And the, the language is very strong there. But then there's an equally strong and in the context, almost a jarring, redemptive promise at the end. Yes, the promise that God will be faithful. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Now, both parties in this marriage of God and human beings, both parties, when it goes rightly, feel the joy of this intimate covenantal communion. It's a true love match, as in fact we see in Zephaniah. In Zephaniah, third mm-hmm. chapter, We hear these words, sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Yeah, one of my favorite verses in all scripture and just absolutely beautiful and encouraging. Absolutely remarkable. Now, of course, all of these Old Testament glimmers find their final and deepest expression in the New Testament's portrayal of Christ and the church as his bride. And here, here we are touching upon what Paul calls a profound mystery in Ephesians 5. The mystery of how the words first penned by Moses in Genesis 2.24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh, really refer to the relationship between Christ and the church. Yes. Yes. The one flesh union of man and woman as it's found in Genesis 2 represents the most profound bond that can exist between two human beings. Within it, Ray Ortland says, we mentioned him last time, within mm-hmm. it, Ray Ortland writes, nothing can be withheld. Marriage puts a barrier around the husband and his wife and destroys all barriers between them. They belong fully to each other and to one another only. 
Wow. So it's the most intimate Fantastic. of all human communions. Yes. Now, as Adam was a type of the one who was to come, that's found in Romans 5.14, Mm-hmm. That is, as he was the first foreshadowing of the incarnation of our Lord. Right. So right. Adam and Eve's marriage was the earthly type, the first foreshadowing of the marriage of Christ and the church. Through his earthly work, the Lamb saves the church. He has so loved her that he gave himself up for her in order to make her holy and to present her to himself Mm -hmm. at the end of this world's history, at the consummation, as it's said in Ephesians 5, 26 and 27, as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, holy Mm -hmm. and blameless. That, that's the church that comes down from heaven, from God prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband in Revelation 21. Yeah, again, so helpful, Mark, is you're, we're following your look at the end rule and you're working your way backwards from Revelation to show how Christ's union with his people is like marriage or, or really it's the other way, right? That human right. marriage is intended to typify the love that Jesus has for his church. Yes. And yeah. And so throughout the scripture, God is underscoring the depth of that relationship and really this remarkable intensity of God's commitment in it to us. Yes. Yes. So now, Paul, I can finally answer the question that opened the episode. You ask, Why was death the penalty, the sanction or the consequence for our first parents eating from the forbidden tree? You said that it didn't seem like a case where the punishment fits the crime. You said that you could see that if God had said, if you eat that fruit and it's too sugary, then you'll get cavities. Mm -hmm. That that penalty, that consequence for that act, you said, seems logical. But it doesn't seem logical that Adam and Eve would die if they ate from the forbidden tree. Why was it literally a matter of life and death that they had to obey? Hmm. Well, Mark, I I have a little bit of a theory here, and it's from an example of human marriage. And, And this is just anecdotal, but it's coming to mind as we're listening to you on these things. Isn't it? interesting, I think, where you have couples who have lived a long time and been married a long time, maybe 50 or 60 years of marriage together. And it seems like frequently, not always, but certainly enough to make me think of this, that shortly after the marriage relationship is broken through the death of one of the spouses, that the other dies within days or weeks after the first. Now, it's not all the time, but again, it's it's more frequent than you might expect statistically, as though the break in the relationship facilitates or speeds up or causes even the death of the second. They'll each live together 87 years, or they'll live 87 years, maybe married together for 50 or 60 years. Then one dies, and it seems the second goes maybe a month later. 
And there's something in that. And we, we observe it and we all sort of nod our heads when it happens as though, yes, that was sort of inevitable. But it seems to be linked to what you're saying here about the connectedness of life and personhood and communion. Yes, that's right, Paul. That's a good theory. The answer is that the life of persons is essentially and necessarily a life of communion, of love with other persons. Mm, mm -hmm. It was not good for Adam to be alone because human personhood cannot survive, let alone flourish in a single isolated individual. We know this because we know that the lack of communication and communion that individuals in solitary confinement experience leads, if it lasts long enough, to the dissolution of their personalities. Mm. We Mm. also know that infants who aren't given the right sort of loving care that is natural for parents to give to their children fail to thrive. Mm -hmm. They can even develop, this isn't the usual cause of autism, but there were cases of this in Russia when children were neglected after the Soviet Union fell apart. They can even develop a kind of autism. Mm. And at worst, they simply die. And we should know this, we should know this fact that, in fact, persons must live in relationships of love by thinking about our God, who Mm -hmm. is not a single person, but as the Nicene Creed puts it, three persons in one substance. In The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis writes this, there is no reason to suppose that self-consciousness which is the kind of consciousness of a person, there's no reason to suppose that self-consciousness, the recognition of a creature by itself as a self, can exist except in contrast to an other, a something which is not the self. It is against an environment, and preferably a social environment, an environment of other selves, that the awareness of myself stands out. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And this, he continues would raise a difficulty about the consciousness of God if we were mere theists. Being Christians, we learn from the doctrine of the Blessed Trinity that something analogous to society exists within the divine being from all eternity, that God is love because within him the concrete reciprocities of love exist before all worlds and are thence derived to the creatures. As the only created beings who are made in God's image, we human beings image God in being self-conscious persons, persons who must be in intimate, personal communication and communion with other self-conscious persons in order to become and remain mature self-conscious persons. Wow, that that is a really important, remarkable point. I think we should just sit down on for a minute and think about carefully. We're, we're hearing you say, Mark, that the Trinity, the three persons of the Godhead are really the ones who sort of define who we are because they're communal. Uh, the persons of the Godhead, the, the Trinitarian Godhead is communal. 
and their community with each other, you're saying, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that their interaction, their community, their fellowship with each other is fundamental to how we understand our personhood, that we were not created to live alone. They they don't exist alone. They live in that communion. It, it seems like our ideas of human personhood need to flow as derived, as Lewis, I think you quoted, was saying, needs to be derived from that. The community, we understand you to be saying, then is inextricably linked to what it means to be a person. That's right. Henri Blochet writes that if the calling of mankind is to be with his God, in other words, if the calling of mankind is to be an intimate covenantal communion with God, Mm -hmm. if the calling of mankind is to be with his God, it is fitting that his earthly existence should already be characterized by being with, by mitzvahing. Otherwise, the relationship with God would be, as it were, laminated onto our nature, and we would risk becoming lost instead of fulfilled in it. Mm -hmm. Adam's covenantal union with Eve is the first and foremost type of our need for communion with God. So the sanction that God announced regarding our first parents, eating from the forbidden tree, was not arbitrary. It wasn't arbitrary, Paul, because it was merely announcing what was inevitable if they refused to love their creator above all else. Human beings as created persons do not, cannot live on bread alone. They must live on every word that comes from God. Hmm. As Jesus himself said after being uh, tempted, as he was being tempted in the wilderness, and this is because he, like us, was, as to his human nature, a human person. And he was made, well, not made, but he was incarnated in his as the son of God to be in fellowship with God in, in the way that we are. That's right. God's words, however they come to us, through conscience, through nature, and most fully and perfectly through scripture, God's words make and sustain us as created persons. When Adam and Eve refuse to listen to God's word, by refusing to obey his prohibition, they cut themselves off from the very source of their lives as persons, Mm -hmm. which was to be a life of communication and communion with God. So that's the answer. The, The death that follows this disobedience had to be the consequence because where there is no communion with God, there can be no personhood. Right. Spiritual death for them was immediate, and biological death would inevitably follow. For the dreadful consequences of not listening to and obeying God would first manifest themselves in their failure to thrive, which when you think about it, it was obviously clear. Yeah, right away. Then in their losing their ability to communicate effectively. Mm -hmm. And finally, in their biological deaths. Well, this has been um, 
challenging and sobering, Mark. Thank you so much for giving us some excellent frameworks to be able to think about this and to be able to think about the chief consequence of Adam and Eve's refusal to obey God in this episode. I'm sure we'll all be um, taking some time to reflect on what we've been listening to today. So again, thank you. In the next episode, we will turn our attention to examine how our first parents were entreated by the serpent to disobey God, resulting in the fall. Thanks again, Mark, for your time. Thanks, Paul. While it might initially seem that the penalty of death was too harsh a punishment for eating from the tree of good and evil, we see from looking at the whole of Scripture that if Adam and Eve refused to listen to God's word, they would cut themselves off from the very source of their lives. Persons must live in relationships of love, primarily because our God is not a single person, but three loving persons in one substance. So God's prohibition with the penalty of death was not arbitrary. It was announcing what was inevitable if Adam and Eve refused to love their Creator above all else. For as Deuteronomy states and our Lord affirmed, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Mark's conversation partner for this episode has been Paul Winters. If you found this content helpful, please let us know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Your review will help others find these discussions as well. And if you have any questions about what was discussed in this episode, email us at info at whenthestarsdisappear.com. We'll answer listeners' questions as soon as we have enough of them to make up an episode, and we'd love to answer one from you. This is Lauren Susanto on behalf of Mark and Paul thanking you for listening to When the Stars Disappeared.